Hey everyone, thanks for dropping in to take another listen to the Now of Work podcast. I'm Abigail Von Bank, Jess Von Bank's niece, and LeapGen's very first student intern. I had the privilege of being able to listen in on this episode while it was being recorded. Today we have Chelsea Abbey with us. My Aunt Jess met Chelsea when they were co-panelists for a diversity and inclusion event. And after being co-panelists, my Aunt Jess knew she needed to have her here on the podcast. So today we'll hear a little bit about that, as well as Chelsea's journey to and her thoughts on the now. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for being my guest on the Now of Work. Hi, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, happy Friday. The day that we're recording this is a Friday. Is it? Is it beautiful where you are? It is beautiful where I am, although we can't really do much out there, but it's, I've got all the windows open. So we, we use an analogy on, uh, on some of the meetups that we do for the Now of Work community and at LeapGen, we use a stoplight analogy, green, yellow, red. Like if your mood was a mindset, if your mindset was a stoplight, are you green on the stoplight? Like all systems are a go, are you feeling kind of like red, yellow? How's your, how's your mood these days, navigating everything we're navigating? It's, it's, it's a yellow. I would, I would have to say it's a yellow. For sure, the weeks get long, and it feels like we don't, we're not getting a lot of good news these days. Um, and so sometimes it gets hard, but, you know, you definitely got to keep going. You never want it to get to a red. So I would say I, it's been a yellow for me for yeah. a while. I hear you. We, you know, every time we ask this question in a live poll or something when we're doing online events, I would say anywhere from 40 to 50% of our audience is in a solid yellow. There's a lot. There's a lot to process, a lot to think about. It, just before we hit record, I told you that's kind of why we came out with this podcast. The best way to, to manage and think about all there is to manage and think about these days is to, is to talk and to help each other through some big issues. So for context, I'm going to have you introduce yourself in a second, but for context, we met on a panel, a speaker panel in a, in a different kind of community event for Oracle. And I was so impressed by you. I had to have you as a guest on the Now of Work. So will you introduce yourself? Like, what is your story? Who are you? Where are you? What, what's, what's the deal? And then we're going to dig in here. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Chelsea Abbey. I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. Went to undergrad at the University of North Texas. Um, was really passionate about social advocacy work. Was president of the NAACP during my undergrad career. Uh, and then furthered that by going to law school. I'm now at Emory Law, about to head into my last year of law school. And my law practice is more, um, transactionally focused, but I try to get social advocacy work in any way that I can. And so I created a blog, chelseaslaw.com, which was originally supposed to be about just my journey to law school. But then I kind of realized that there's so much more to me and so much more that I have to talk about. So now it kind of covers women's empowerment issues, social advocacy, also my journey to law school. But just in general, I'm I love mentorship. I'm always trying to lift as I climb. And I think that that's what my goal was when I created the blog. And so I'm happy to be here, happy to be on panels that discuss issues so close, so near and dear to my heart. 
And yeah, looking forward to this conversation. I think it's rather incredible and striking that you are, let's, let's safely put you in your early 20s. Can I say that? Yes. <laughs> I'm 23. And here you are alongside me, who, not to say anything about me, except that I've been in my industry for coming up on 18 years. And here you are on a speaker panel um, focused on diversity and inclusion, talking to technology professional, professionals for a massive technology giant in the HR space. Um, so, so clearly you're catching eyes and catching attention for your voice, which I think is incredible. And I think it's really important. You caught my eye. Now you're on your first podcast. I think <laughs> and I, I'm like you. I think that's why I was so drawn to you. I believe in advocacy. I believe in empowerment. I actively support women's empowerment groups and youth development groups where I'm at in Minneapolis. And so I wanted to amplify you and your voice. Uh, on my platform. So, so here we are. I'm curious to know on this, on this, you know, this technology users, professional focused business platform, you know, that we were both speakers on, we addressed race in business at work. Obviously, you know, it was a panel focused on diversity and inclusion following the murder of George Floyd in my city in Minneapolis. And a lot of corporate America is wondering, um, what to do about this, how to address the fact that race is clearly an issue, not just in society, but in work. And how do, we, how do you foster inclusion and equality and that kind of thing? We won't go, go deep on that topic, although we can, but I'm more curious to know what surprised you in, in a business context, in a corporate America conversation, was there anything from your, through your lens, through your eyes that was surprising that that we didn't recognize that the panel and the speakers and the, the questions we were getting from the audience, that it was the issue that it was, or that we didn't recognize it to be the issue that it was. How did that panel strike you? I can't say that anything surprised me, but what I will say is that it made me realize just the major disconnect when we started talking about the sensitive topics that we try to skirt around at work. But at the same time, every, every job, every organization, every business has a diversity and inclusion initiative. And so I think that just that disconnect between wanting diversity and inclusion, but never wanting to bring up the things that make me all whole, make me human. But like, so you brought me here because I'm a black woman, but any issue that relates to black, to me being a black woman or me being a gay woman or me being a part of any marginalized community that was that is essentially what attracted you to me and wanted you wanted to make you hire me for this company we're not going to discuss i think that it's like diversity but not inclusion you know diversity mm -hmm. is bringing me to the table inclusion is giving me a chance to speak and what is the point of being at the table if you're there and being silent and so even when we say that like I guess what was so surprising to me is how no one else heard how crazy that sounds that like these are the very issues that we, we fear bringing up at the table. And I think that for my generation, we're just kind of saying we are absolutely not coming to this table if we are not bringing these issues up because we can no longer ignore them because once we walk outside of these buildings, 
people are dying for being a part of those very marginalized communities that you brought me here for, but failed to address. I, I think that's really smart. And the beginning of my experience in the HR and talent space was in recruiting. And so I can say from personal experience, I think we get the order of priority wrong. We, we attempt to meet diversity requirements first, and we don't think about creating an environment of inclusion or creating a sense of belonging. So then when you do diversity first, it's a compliance you know, sort of exercise. You're ticking a box uh, either to meet compliance requirements or for PR, you know, sort of optics or whatever, and not because you truly value the benefit that those diverse voices and thoughts bring to the table. Because if you do value, then you would have already created an inclusive environment where that is welcomed, fostered, where every voice, every type of person, every persona feels a sense of belonging, feels not only welcomed, but valued. And so when you, when you, when you chase diversity first and you haven't done the other work, you haven't made inclusion a part of your corporate values, then it's going to fail every time. And it's going to come off exactly what it is. A, a checking of the compliance box and a PR optics exercise that doesn't go any further. Um, Absolutely. And, and it feels like you're just meeting a quota. So it feels even like as I journey into internships and looking at full-time jobs, uh, some, there are definitely times where I walk into a law firm and it feels like, okay, you just, you guys just need two black summers for this stuff. Like you don't actually want me or like me. You, your boss just told you to go hire two diverse individuals. And that, that is all we're doing. And there are other times that I walk into firms, like the firm that I'm at, where it's like, I don't see much of me, but I feel like the diversity efforts are genuine. And to me, that's all that matters because we can get the diversity. But like you said, the inclusion comes first. And when I walk in and I feel the inclusion, like I feel like my needs are being met and heard. And if there's something that I don't like, or if there's improvements that can be made, there's an open the open door for me to bring those up. Then I, I'm confident that the diversity will come with that because minority individuals will start flocking towards these these type of firms. And what's amazing about it in law specifically is that our big clients are demanding diversity. They're demanding it. They're saying we are not going to keep you on as a firm if you don't come into these meetings with diverse attorneys. And so that is why there's this, been this big flop towards diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion. It's because clients are demanding it. Thank God, these big corporations. And so there is going to come a time where genuine diversity efforts are life or death. And, and it's very obvious when it's not, when they're not. I think that's a really powerful statement. Your clients are demanding it, so the action is following. I guess we don't care exactly how it happens as long as it happens. So if somebody has to say, I insist upon this and make your money follow your words, you won't get my business unless I see uh, what, what I need to see. I guess it, it doesn't matter how it comes about. Somebody's got to say, this is how it happens and the buck stops here. And so to your example, I kind of want to pick a scab a little bit to your example. Yeah. If you, if you feel, if you suspect that you're a diversity hire, that you're checking somebody's box, does that 
change your mind about that opportunity? Or do you say, okay, but I'm going to come in and, and look for changes, make be part of the changes or, or does it, or do the values have to be there first? I will say for where I am in my career, having no kids being about to be fresh out of law school, you need to already be there by the time that I get there. I think that it, it's different. It's different. Like when I am older, 10 years from now, when I have kids and I have a husband and food has to be put on the table regardless, then maybe I will just say, oh, you know what? Okay, let me come in and just kind of work with it. But I think that's the thing about my generation is that we have options. We're very employable and it's, we, this is something I demand. It's not something that I'm willing to work with because you should have already been there. And so there is a bit of intolerance for, you know, in genuine diversity efforts, trying to meet quota systems because we real, we, we're starting to finally realize our value. Like, I'm not just here just to be a diversity hire. I'm here because I can bring a lot to the table. And so why should I have to bring all of that to the table and help you make it more inclusive for me? Mm-hmm. That's, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's really strong. Uh, the example I had in my head in asking that question, I have, you know, my, my radar, you know, I have my uh, sensitivities to diverse panels and thought leadership. If I look at a conference agenda, I want to see diverse speakers. The, the speaker panel, the speaker lineup should be as diverse as the audience sitting sitting there listening and so i've gotten speaker requests before or been a part of events that you know and i work in hr which is white and female for the most part until you get to senior ranks of hr and then it becomes white and male and so i see it all the time in my in my own way from my perspective where i get a request to be a speaker or i or i'm requested to be a part of an event uh that looks quite homogenous to me um and I've, I have gotten the token female request, hey, we need a woman on this panel. We need to diversify the panel. We need a female. And I accept those requests to say, yes, you do. <laughs> and I'm happy to be that person. But you recognize it. You sniff it out when it's sort of the, the token gesture versus uh, maybe you should ask for my participation because I know what I'm talking about. And I might have right. a perspective that you need and you don't have right now. Um, so tell me about law. You're speaking of homogenous. You're entering a field that has been predominantly male and perhaps predominantly white. I don't know the demographics of law. I'm just sort of absolutely predominantly here. male and predominantly white. You're yeah, correct. So, so why law? Can you tell me what drew you to this field? Yeah. So I was around the age of 11 when I decided to go that I wanted to do law. My childhood best friend's father was deported. Um, and sent back to Argentina. And then so when, within a span of three days, I, she had to pack up everything. Her and her family had to pack up everything they ever owned and get back to Argentina because her father was deported. And so my father's also from Nigeria. And so immigration was always near and dear to my heart. From that moment on, I knew that I wanted to be an immigration attorney. And so you couldn't tell me before, when I was going into law school that I wasn't going to pursue immigration because I was so passionate about it. And I still am very passionate about it. But I think that throughout law school, that passion has kind of shaped, just shifted towards social advocacy in general. Um, and so 
Yeah. So, um, and I also have interest in big law. I think that for black law students or minority, minority laws, law students of color in general, I think that we go to law school with so much on our backs, feeling like we have to save the world. Um, because a lot of why we got into law was because we wanted to save the world. And so I, I found a passion for real estate and corporate, corporate work. It almost felt guilty because I, fe I felt like I was turning my back on why I actually came to law school. Um, and I kind of reasoned with that by, you know, I will be able to make a huge part of my pro bono practice doing that social advocacy work, that immigration work. I've been able to work on asylum cases and giving those services to people for free rather than making that my livelihood and i'm excited i'm excited to do that because i feel like in a lot of cases the immigration services that i'll be giving out need to be for free because it's such a need in our community right now and so i look forward to doing that coupled with doing something that i love you mentioned earlier you have a blog chelsea's law and i took a look at it earlier um, I love your, your passion for social advocacy, and when I looked at your blog site, the most popular blog you appear to have written, at least by the views and impressions and comments, it seems like it went a little bit viral, is called A Weak Alliance. And you wrote it after the murder of George Floyd. I mentioned earlier I'm in Minneapolis, so I had um, a very personal and intimate experience with, with that happening in my my own city, but nothing like the personal and intimate experience black people all over the world had with that event. And I loved what you wrote about allyship. You put allies essentially into three buckets, the willfully ignorant, and there's a whole other set of problems in conversation about that category, the well-meaning but silent, and then the bothered but timid. And I think that is so accurate. I think you really nailed it. And I'll just say, as a white person, I can attest from my perspective and view of the world, most white people are bothered and agree there's a problem. Most white people want to support positive change, but most white people don't know what to do. And I've heard this new phrase circulating now in what I read online, news sources and social media about performative allyship. So how, so whatever category a person is in as an ally, how does a person do more than performative allyship? I, this is something that you're passionate about and that you've written about. Yeah, so it just depends on which bucket you're in. So if you're in the willfully ignorant, I kind of mentioned on the panel that I don't spend a lot of my time in that in that category. Um, I think that a lot of people in that category will stay in that category because they want to be in that category. And I don't think that you should spend a lot of waste a lot of your time there. But for the well-meaning but silent and the bothered but timid, I, I say that you start by educating yourself. I think that I don't know how to feel about performative allyship because I don't know what that means. Does it mean a repost on social media? Does it mean um, sending your well wishes to your to your black friend? I'm not sure. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't looked into it too much because I think that all of those things are helpful. I think that any time you're doing something that where that takes you out of that bubble of privilege, out of the willfully ignorant, any time, even if it's a retweet. So you're putting this screenshot or this message about George Floyd, about 
any of the other hashtags onto your TL to where your followers, so where your followers can see and you begin that conversation, I think it's helpful. Anytime you bring these conversations or what you see on Twitter to your dinner table, I think it's helpful. Is it where you should end? No, but it's certainly a place, it's certainly a place to begin. And so I think that sometimes when we say performative allyship, it overlooks like how even those simple things are conversation starters. And what we really need to start having is conversations because you might realize that when you bring it to the table, you get a lot more pushback than you were expecting. Okay, why is that? And now we can get into it. But had you never brought it up, you would have never, you would have never known. But I, I have met and spoke, spoken with so many allies who want to get involved but don't know how. And what I say to them is first you start by educating yourself, educating yourself, because something that we had to do and most of my generation had to do is educate ourselves because black history year after year was being pulled out of textbooks. Everything that I know about my history is something that I had to take the time to educate myself on. And so it's so, it's so easy to, when you want to get, when you're passionate about it, you finally start to get mad about it or bothered about it to say, okay, go to your nearest black friend. Okay, how can I help? Tell me what to do. And it's like, but nobody told us what to do. We get it wrong, then we get it right. Get it wrong, then we get it right every single day. Um, and so you take that time to educate, to educate yourself as well. Um, and then I say, the, the, for me, allyship is, taking a message back to your community and spreading it like wildfire, however you see fit. It also could be, we, we use the, t the, the term opening your purse, you know, donating, but not everyone has the, has the tools to donate, but everyone can communicate. Everyone has a voice, whether that's on your social media, whether that's with your families, whether that's with your friends and having those uncomfortable conversations. I think that a lot of allies stay in the bothered, but timid, timid category because they're scared of what will happen if they say something. And I think that we should start thinking about, number one, why am I scared? Number two, like what, what about it is so uncomfortable? And, and then three, understanding that we too are uncomfortable. We too are often scared. We too, we too often have to figure out, okay, is it worth my job? Or, like, or is it worth my beliefs? Is it worth the, this friendship? or what I believe in, like we battle with that every single day. And so to be scared just simply isn't enough because we are constantly having to work through those fears because this is something that we believe, we believe in this that much. And so I think that every ally should be trying to get to that place. I believe in this so much that if it costs me a friend, okay. If it costs me a job, okay. If it costs me a follower, okay, you know, because at the end of the day, what I'm advocating for is way more important than any of those things. So I, I think we agree on one thing, which is modeling behavior. Um, and I know that we're recent acquaintances, but those who know me really well, Chelsea, know that I am all about raising girls. I have three young daughters. I'm about raising my own girls, but all girls. So call it women's empowerment, but I believe you've got to go young and start early. And so I support youth development. I'm all about modeling behavior because a lot of what we want to exist, the world we want to know 
um, as, as being better and an improvement on, on the world we were born into. It doesn't exist yet. That's the whole point. And so you need to model the behaviors that we want the next generation coming behind us to embrace and to know as, as normal and routine. We want them to know equality and parity and, and we want them to, to sort of expect as normal the world that we're actually trying to create and achieve now. And so I'm all about that sort of visualization and, and modeling behaviors, you know, sort of the, you have to see it before you can be it kind of thing. Um, and what you, what you talked about, having the conversations, following through, becoming so passionate about something that you'll stick by it, even if it costs you other things, you know, what is it worth to you? That's really about modeling, um, modeling behavior in the same way that I embrace it in terms of, of raising girls and empowering people that you can empower. Um, and in my case, that's my three daughters and, and an entire generation of girls. Um, I know where my inspirations came from. Like everybody who has a thing, I feel like, who has a soapbox, who has a platform, who has that issue that they, you know, ride or die by, that came from somewhere. So if you don't mind sharing, I'm so curious to know what your inspirations are. Where did this fire in your belly come from? I think it came from my mom. I was raised by a single mom and so and I and I'm an only child, so for a lot of times it was just me and her um struggling and figuring it out and overcoming challenges together and constantly feeling like I, I had to beat the odds. And so I will say that I have had the opportunity of sitting in a lot of prestigious places, Emory Law being one of those places, but I'll never forget that every step of the way, it felt like I had to be 10 times better than my counterparts in order to be considered equal, to get to the same schools, to get the same internships. I just always felt that way. And so for me, my mom was a fighter. She has always been a fighter. And she just gets the job done and she just makes magic happen. And for me, I think that I'm going into a field where no one looks like me. And in 10 years from now, I want a lot of people to look like me in that field. And I'm not sure how you go about doing that, but I just, you just got to get the job done. And I think a major way to do that is to lift as I climb. And so keeping my blog running, even when I'm in law school, even when I'm super busy, um, you know, always being available to other young girls who are trying to get into law school and don't know how I was that girl. I was that girl who would like DM people on Twitter, like, please help me because I don't have an uncle or an aunt or a dad that I can call and ask about these admissions letters or I don't have that. And so being that for people every step of the way. And I think that sometimes we think that we have to get to the partner of the law firm before we can reach back and help someone. And that's not true because at every step of my journey, I've realized that there is another young girl that looks just like me trying to get to where I am. Um, and so always just wanting to be that inspiration for other people so that when we look up in 10 years at the law firm and hopefully just at the then just in big law in general and corporations in general, it looks like the rest of the world. Yeah, you raised a, an important issue earlier that I meant to circle back to. When companies pursue diversity hiring um, for all kinds of reasons, and hopefully the right reasons, that there's value in diverse thought and leadership and voice, that companies actually perform better 
um, they're more successful when they have more diverse leadership boards, et cetera. Um, but how quickly, so even, even, you know, how tricky it is, um, even if you pursue diversity in your hiring and recruiting process, it's a subject, it's a, it's a demographic that's quickly muted because then we're taught from an HR perspective not to talk about pr protected classes, for example. So we don't talk about race and sexual orientation and um, gender inequality issues or poli we don't talk about politics or religion at work. We're just taught not to. There's this separation of church and state where we compartmentalize life from work. And so I love your passion and I think it really does have to start with your generation and you know there everybody else who's been in business in corporate America for a while can can make changes as well. Um, but I love setting the bar and expecting the bar to be met and taking those small actions every day that are going to uh, that are going to say okay we've just hired a diversity uh, a, a diverse, you know, voice, per person who brings different thought, lived experiences to the table. Now, how are we going to benefit from that diversity? We have to ask her about her original thoughts and unique perspectives. And I want to understand her lived experiences. And guess what? That has to do with the fact that you're black and you're a woman and that you grew up where you did and you were the age you are and you were raised by who you were raised by. It includes all of those details. So you have to like let all of those details be part of the conversation, I truly believe. I agree, I agree. So one of my favorite questions for people, if you had to do a TED Talk next week, or in a month, we'll give you more time to prepare. If you had to do a TED Talk, what would it be? Oh, I think that it would be about the bystander effect as it relates to allyship. Um, talking about allyship really is my soapbox, and I think that that's just because, one, I've been on, so I haven't been in the work course that much but I have been um, a part of friend groups I played volleyball so I've been a, been a part of volleyball teams and I know the da how damaging it can be when you skirt around those tough issues and you believe that people are your allies but you, you never really know that until you bring those things to the table um, and so I have always been an advocate of bringing those hard topics to the table um, and then helping allies once we get helping allies once we get there because I think a lot of people like you said are bothered um, But like I don't know where to go from here. That's really the bystander effect That is the bystander effect like I see the issue and I'm waiting on someone else to fix it or some people will say You know, I see the issue, but I and I, I support you guys as y'all fix it But it's like no, 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 no It is a human issue. This is this is this is a matter of humanity at this at this point and so I think I could talk about that for days it I was just blown away at the response to a weak alliance because it really I think I think it went viral and got the response that it did because so many allies are sitting wondering what they can do to help and just really not knowing um, and waiting for someone to tell them and so i think that there's just so much room for growth in this area and i it's something i could talk about for days like i said yeah i love it so chelsea i've been completely honored to have you as my guest on this podcast i'm going to give you a chance though i'm almost 20 years older than you i feel like you're my sister from another mister because we have so <laughs> many shared 
passions around empowerment and advocacy and modeling behavior and all of that. So I'm going to give, and, and this, I, I sort of feel like when we started, I said, I wanted to amplify your voice on my platform, on a business platform, from a professional woman's perspective, from, you know, I think bringing different voices to the table is incredibly important, but I'm going to flip the tables right now and give you a chance to ask me anything. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah. So I kind of want to know from you, like as it relates to HR, what's your vision for HR in the next 10 years? Ooh, that is such a good question, especially in the year of 2020 when the game changed in so many ways in terms of the way people work. Um, the pandemic had a lot to do with that, but I think there are a lot of contributing factors that are really making this year the biggest moment. Anybody who works in HR or business leadership, I think this is the biggest moment of their careers if they look at it that way as a true opportunity because we've been driving for digital transformation, for example. We've been driving to elevate workforce experience, to make work feel as natural, easy, digital, seamless, connected, frictionless as it does outside of work. You know, why, is, why does it feel like 2020 outside of work and it feels like 1995 inside of work? So there's been this big push in our industry in human resources to modernize, to elevate experience, to design work for people instead of trying to get people to, to fit a mold of work, which is antiquated and outdated. And in a really exciting way, this is the year everything blew up for us. We don't have to row against the current anymore. We don't have to, you know, Sherpa up the mountain anymore because all of the rules just went out the window. So I think this is the greatest opportunity anybody in HR will ever have to do something truly disruptive and truly transformative. And the, the silver lining of this, as I see it, again, I came from the talent part of the, of the HR space, talent and recruiting. That was my original love. I'm still super passionate, passionate about connecting people to opportunity, but then fully empowering them to fully show up as their full authentic self. I truly believe that when you let somebody fully show up, that's when you get their best, most passionate work out of them. And it's a win-win. So the other thing about this year is that we became virtual, distributed, remote, whatever you want to call it. Now there are no barriers. Talent is everywhere and you can hire them from anywhere. So kind of like our, you know, the conversation we've been having I don't care if you're in Omaha or Tulsa or Boise, Idaho, and you don't have diverse talent available to you because they're not geographically situated to where you need them to work. Guess what? That's not a barrier anymore. Right. So now you get to truly bring all available talent to the table. You get, you get to build the most, and because a lot of people got laid off, we have 15 million people unemployed, no, I'm sorry, 15%, 30 plus million people unemployed. There's more available talent, good, highly qualified available talent who just caught a bad stroke of luck. There's never been more available talent right now. And there's nothing keeping you from hiring the most diverse, innovative talent you've ever had available. So yeah, I think it's a big opportunity for HR to redesign work for people to let them fully show up in a more human way than they ever have before. And I think it's a really exciting time to widen the lens of what 
is available to you and to, to kind of, you know, stir the talent pot for good. Yeah. That's awesome. Good question. So Chelsea, how do people follow you or find you? What platforms, what social you've got your blog? Yes, I've got my blog, chelseaslaw.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me at Chelsea Abbey. Um, where else? And I'm also on Instagram. Sorry, Instagram, Abby Chels, A-B-I-I-C-H-E-L-S. You can follow me. You can find me on any of those platforms. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Chelsea. You have been my favorite guest. No kidding. We got this podcast <laughs> out super fast this year. We've already done 50 episodes and you're my favorite guest so far. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. You too.